So Virginia, thank you so much for coming today. It's such an honor that I welcome you to Club 15. And so to start off, can you tell us where you're located and what the mission of the Born Free Foundation is? Our main office is in the UK, in the south of England. And, um, but we have an office in Kenya because we do a lot of work in Kenya, as you probably might know, particularly in Meru National Park. And then we have two sanctuaries, um, one in Ethiopia and one in uh, South Africa, on the east of South Africa, near Port Elizabeth. And these are all rescued animals um, that we've managed to save, really, from horrible zoos and horrible lives, quite frankly. The South African one started quite a long time ago, but I suppose for me they're one of my favourite places to visit because we've given a better life to these victims, you know, who were suffering nightmares in captivity, you know, on concrete and in small cages, Most, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them. And now they've got a chance to be a little bit who they really are. They can't hunt for themselves, but they can be fed and have a happy time. What you're doing is so amazing. And it's so great that these animals are getting a second chance at life in your sanctuaries. Okay, so now take us back over 55 years ago and when you starred in the Oscar-winning movie, Born Free, can you tell us about Elsa the Lion Cub and what it was like to work with the lions on the movie set and how did the <laughs> movie change you? Going to the right to the beginning of it, we went out there by ship with our, the three children that we had then because we knew we were going to be there a very long time, which turned out to be ten and a half months. And the first two lionesses we were introduced to gave us a little bit of a shock because they were quite middle-aged. They were about nine and ten years old and they'd been ex-circus lions from Europe. So we thought, how are we going to tell the story of Adamson's and Elsa the lioness with these very large animals that we could only behave with as the trainer allowed us to and we had to wear these leather guards on our wrists in case the lions sort of la not lashed out but went like that and their nails caught our veins and we bled to death i'm being a little bit dramatic now and and we had to have two little sticks like this not to hit them with but however we held the sticks the lionesses understood what we wanted them to do so don't come any nearer, go to the right, go to the left, sit down. They had all these signs, which I suppose they'd learnt in captivity in the circus, you see. Um, and so we had to learn how to behave with them. But one day, uh, my husband Bill had gone in for his, what they called training session. And the lioness that he went in with, with the trainer, uh, was in a very bad mood and wanted to get to him. And um, unfortunately, they'd only made one gate in the fencing of the compound and the lioness happened to be in the way, so he couldn't get out. So the trainer had to 
sort of angle herself in between the Lanus and, and my husband. And he managed to get out. And of course, <laughs> I never forget it. The producers and, and the director were standing outside the wire going ashen with fear, thinking they were about to lose their leading man. And, um, luckily, he got out. But both those Lannises then were withdrawn from ev- all close contact. And then they had none. And that's when the lands we worked with all started to come into our lives. The first two, I won't go on too much about this because there's a list, but the first two were a brother and sister, and they were mascots of a regiment called the Scots Guards in Nairobi. And the producers heard about them, and they came up to us with their sergeant, who'd looked after them ever since they were tiny cubs. They were now about eight months old. And he stayed with us about 10 days, two weeks to introduce us. Then he left and we took his place, as it were. And we used to walk with them on the plains. We used to play hide and seek, football. We used to have an amazing time with them. And they became, girl became one of the main lances to play Elsa. And we had little Elsa, who was much younger, of course. And then there was a lioness called Mara who came from the Nairobi Animal Orphanage. And she did all the swimming scenes in the film. Because the Lannis that we'd taken, girl, to do this, the beach work, the beach scenes, she liked the sand, she liked the beach, but she couldn't bear the sea. Luckily, we'd taken several lands that we had to see every day because we had to keep that contact going. We'd taken them with us and Mara adored the sea. So Girl did all the walking on the beach pits and Mara did all the swimming stuff. So that was a very good thing. And so we got to, as I say, about five animals, boy and girl, Mara, Ugus, who played the great, I don't know if you remember in the film, there was a scene where there was a big lion under a tree and Elsa was on top of the roof and we were driving along and she saw him and she got down from the Land Rover and went to him and they had a little fisticuff and then uh, sort of stayed together. And he, girl and boy, at the end of the filming, when all the lands unknown to us had been sold to zoos and safari parks by the company, except we managed to save boy, girl and Ugas. And they went to our greatest friend, George Adamson, who had been our inspiration and help from beginning to end. And he returned those three to the world. Wow. I can't imagine working with all those lions. Those experiences you must have had would have been such unforgettable. I mean... Well, you're quite right. They, they were. They are unforgettable. I And I didn't know it took that many lions i mean just to have a lion to swim in the ocean that's really interesting well particularly as she'd no idea she was going to be swimming she didn't know what she was doing except she saw us every day and uh, we didn't know that girl didn't like the water so you know so luckily she was there and she adored the sea (laughs) yes okay so now did you have any idea at the time that the Born Free movie would inspire millions of people to get involved with wildlife conservation? And did you know that it would inspire you to spend a lifetime in animal advocacy work? It wasn't quite like that. It obviously, um, I mean, it was a very popular film. 
people absolutely loved it. They, they love animal films, certainly in this country, they absolutely adore animal films, whether it's with people or not with people. I mean, we were deeply affected by the film, but it actually was not a lion that began our future life. It was an elephant. In 1968, which was just two or three years after we finished making Born Free, uh, Bill, my husband, and the director of Born Free, James Hill, we'd become very good friends with him, and they decided they would like to, um, to make a little film about elephants. And it was going to be called An Elephant Called Slowly. And the name of the elephant in Swahili was Poli Poli, which means slowly, slowly. And we went out to Kenya and we had a lovely camp, a place where we stayed in, in Savo National Park. And um, a wonderful couple called David and Daphne Sheldrick. The Sheldrick Orphanage of, of Elephants in Nairobi is very famous. They had two teenage elephants they were going to teach to go back to the wild. And um, little Poli Poli, we heard, had, well, she wasn't called that then. Um, she'd been caught from the wild, from her little family, she was only two, as a gift to London Zoo by the government. And we asked permission if we could go and see her. So we went down with David Sheldrick and we saw her. And this poor little creature was so crazy with fear. She was just rushing up and down in the compound, didn't know what to do. She was torn from her family. And I said to David, well, she's too frightened. I mean, she'll never be able to be calm enough to, to be in the film. And I wouldn't really want to make her less, you know, even more nervous. He said, no, no, if I have her for a couple of days, I'm sure I can calm her, which she did. She became the most adorable wonderful creature and did everything because she wanted to we made it fun and um at the end of the film we asked if we could buy her give her to the sheldricks so she could eventually go back to the wild and they said oh yes yes you can buy her but we'll have to capture another one so we said it was just horrendous we said we can't do that we can't have another baby torn from its family so she came to london zoo and I'm afraid uh, Bill went to see her. I, I just was, I couldn't face it actually. I was a bit of a coward, I must admit. So I didn't. And then one day we thought we will go and see her. And I'm going on now about 13 years, 14 years, something like that. We went to see her and she was walking up and down. She had a broken tusk on one side and no tusk on the other. And she was absolutely alone. And as you know, elephants are family creatures. And she was walking up and down, up and down the back of the barren compound. Not a tree, nothing in that awful elephant house at London Zoo. And we called her name. She stopped and she came and she stretched out her trunk to touch our hands. And it was heartbreaking, but what a memory, you see. They don't forget. Elephants never forget. So that's when I... Well, we both started to campaign uh, to rescue her. And I found her a place in South Africa who would take her. I found someone to take her, teach her to integrate with the wild ones. And the zoo refused. And, uh, but they said, we'll compromise. We'll send her to Whipsnade Zoo, which is the London country zoo, where she'll have elephant friends. So we said, well, it's better than being here. 
Unfortunately, they kept her standing in her traveling crate for so many hours that she collapsed. She was had to be, I've got this terrible photograph of her being, you know, the jack people use to, to, to mend a tire in a car, you pump it up like this. They had to jack her up onto her feet and they got her indoors into the, into the den, uh, anesthetized her to examine her damaged legs, they said she had. And they then said to us, well, unfortunately, she lost the will to live and we've put her down. And it was her death, her death, an elephant, that started a very tiny little organization called Zuchek. Around my dining room table here, six of us stood, sat around the table and said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to start a little group and our main work is to look at captivity. Captivity was our cause. And that's what we did and we still do, of course, to this day. Wow. I'm sorry, it's rather a long story. It is a great story. I have a very special place in my heart for elephants. I mean, do you? Yes, Club 15 is actually named after elephants because every 15 minutes an elephant is killed for its tusk. So that's yes, why that's it's called right. Club 15. And that story is so incredible. And I mean, captivity, I mean, I mean, you don't ever want to visit places that use animals for human entertainment. And I know the Born Free Foundation is doing a lot for that. And I also am really close with the Sheldrick family also. A third of the sales from my book go to the Sheldrick Wildlife Trust. Oh, gosh. I've been to the Sheldrick Wildlife Trust quite a few times. I've visited yeah. their elephants, and they're doing so much work. So. Oh, they, they do. They're, the, they're really the sort of leading group, I think, on elephants, because they're focused mainly on elephants, really. Yeah. The legacy that... Daphne Sheldrick and David, her husband, left is just amazing because they were very well known before she finally passed away. And, and she and I were actually very close friends, which was lovely. <laughs> okay, so now let's talk about more about now. So now it's up to my generation to carry out your legacy. I mean, every 15 minutes, an elephant is killed for its tusks. Every eight hours, a rhino is killed for its horn. Penguins are killed by the millions every year. Lions and tigers and monkeys are kept in captivity. So now, can you give an example of how the Born Free Foundation is working to keep wildlife wild through the following campaigns? So can you give an example about ending trophy hunting? Oh, trophy hunting is one of my greatest nightmares. Um, there is no real feeling for the animal at all from birth to death. How can there be real feeling when you remove a cub from its mother when it's only a few days old so that a paying visitor can bottle feed it? Once that's done and the little one's grown bigger and they, go, they can go for walks and pay to have a lovely walk in the bush with the more, more grown-up lioness and, um, and the, or lion and, um, and the attendant, the keeper, whatever they call them, and then finally, when they're big, they go into these very, very large fenced areas, as you obviously know. Um, the fencing is so far away, no one realizes the fence, and people pay huge amounts of money to go and kill a trophy so they can have the head on the wall or the skin on the floor. 
And all these visitors come from far and wide, all over the world, and pay a lot of money. And there is no escape for that animal because if the guest isn't a terribly good shot and either wounds it or misses or whatever, the white hunter who's standing just here will do it. So he's guaranteed a dead animal which he can then use. He can use the, uh, the skin, he can use the head and mount it on the wall. He can do whatever he wants with it. He's got his trophy. And I am 100% against this cruel exploitation of an innocent creature. But I have to say, we learned only a few weeks ago that one of the ministers in, in the South African government, a woman, apparently is also very against trophy hunting. So if somebody in government has that strong feeling, there is, cross everything, a little bit of hope that it may happen, that it will be banned, and no one will cheer louder than me. It just has to happen. It's so, oh, it's, it's so inhumane. I don't know how anyone could do that to any creature. It's really crazy to think that people just want to go to kill animals so they can have the head on the wall. It's just so yeah. crazy to think. But I mean, people are starting to realize that, you know, it's wrong. So there is hope for these animals. There is, but of course it does happen also to tigers in the Far East, you know, they keep them in these, well, concrete pens really. And, you know, they're bred for skins and, and body parts. That's what happens if you're a tiger. So not always, but if you're an unfortunate tiger, that's what happens. Yes, and I mean, it's really up to my generation to stop this. So what can kids do to help in trophy hunting? Raise your voice. Raise your voice. You, you are the, I have to say, you are the hope for the future, young people. Because we've, so many grown-ups have made such a mess of everything. Because it's all about money and about self and about being important. It isn't. It's about leading a decent life, making other people happy and allowing other creatures to lead a decent life and be happy and be who they truly are. And you, there are, I'm absolutely overjoyed that there are so many young people now speaking out. There are in this country as well as in the States. And it's thrilling for somebody, an old person like me, to know that there's hope because of you. You are the, you are the hope. It's and I know you'll win because you won't give in. <laughs> Yes, it's definitely up to my generation. I believe that every kid is born with a natural love for animals and we just have to turn it into advocacy. So it really is up to my generation. Absolutely right. And I mean, I don't understand really how people can have, you know, pets at home, little doggies or, or a pony when they love them and they look after them. They don't kill them. They don't slaughter them unless they're cruel and beastly. You know, they love them. They care for them. What's the... Why would you want to do hurt to a wild animal when it, when it's defenseless? It, it doesn't know humans or enemies until they're shot by one half the time. Or hunting, for example. You know, fox hunting here, I'm not a great advocate of that either, I have to say. 
Yes, okay, so I know Born Free Foundation is doing lots of other things, so can you give an example of how the Born Free Foundation is stopping wild animals from being caged and kept as pets? Oh, kept as pets. Well, that's uh, imprisonment, isn't it? It's the gratification for the human being. It's nothing to do, I'm not saying they necessarily will be unkind to their pet wild animal, but it's totally um, inappropriate and can be very cruel, probably unintentionally, but nevertheless, that's why I'm such a fantastic um, supporter of Born Free USA's Primate Sanctuary, where they have uh, over 400 rescued monkeys of all kinds. I have been there uh, with Will, my son. We spent a fantastic day there. And I shall never forget, we, we went there and then we went through this huge area uh, where the monkeys were all just wandering about, sitting down, playing, sleeping, free. And they'd come. There were one or two really shocking stories about how one, one story was about this beautiful, uh, I can't quite remember if it was a vervet or a baboon, I can't remember, but it doesn't really matter at this minute. It was kept in the basement in a cage. So, and we sort of brought out, you know, when the owner sort of felt like it. And so it didn't have a life at all. And here, all these wonderful monkeys, it seemed they'd forgiven those humans because they, those humans had been replaced by others that really loved them, really cared for them and wanted them to be as wild and free as possible. Not ever totally wild and free, but at least able to walk about and make friends of their own kind. And I think that place, I would hope that, you know, I my hope for the future for primates is that all primates in captivity no longer live in captivity, that it's banned forever for any private person, zoo or whatever, no primates. Our nearest relative, you're going to lock your father up or your mummy in a cage for the rest of his, her or his life? We are related. And even if we're not, if it's an elephant or a tiger or a bird in a cage, which is something else I mad, madly hate, um, how dare we? How dare we abuse and subjugate these creatures who have such depth of feeling, family bonds, birds that fly, never, never able to use their wings. It's, um, I don't know what the matter is with us, actually. Thank God for you. That's what I say. <laughs> I know, and it's actually crazy. I've learned from Dr. Liz Tyson when I visited the monkey sanctuary that some places in the United States, it's legal to have monkeys but even though it's legal, it does not mean it's right. She taught me that. And I mean, people think if it's legal, you can have a monkey and, and no, you can't. I mean, they need to be free. And so, so great that they're born. Well, I mean, it's just a convenient law that human beings have made so they can say it's legal. The monkeys didn't say that. I know. Okay, so now last thing I want to ask you about is can you give an example about how the Born Free Foundation is working to eliminate animals from being used in any form of human entertainment? Entertainment. Well, that's 
even more complicated because there are many nations who don't see anything wrong with it because some human beings think they should be in control, that they can dominate, they can make an animal do what it likes, what they like. Um, luckily, that we don't have any wild animals in circuses here in this country. Um, we fought for that for many, many years. And finally, there are no wild, an wild animals in circuses here now, which is such a relief. There should, well, I think circuses should just be for acrobats and clowns and fun things. There are so many fearful pictures of an elephant once it's done its tricks in the ring led to its miserable sort of dark cell with no no window even and that's where it spends its time i saw a picture only yesterday there was an elephant shackled um forefoot and back foot on the same side could never move actually no window in a dark cell and that's where it was until it went up to do its show or went to do some training or something and i think i think that's criminal actually i don't think anyone should be allowed to keep any living creature like that. So circuses with people, circuses with people, if the people want to do it, fine. They, they have freedom of what they want to do. But to force, to make, to make money out of helpless creatures who have no voice is absolutely shocking and should never, never be allowed. I know, and I mean, it's really up to my generation. Animals don't have a voice for themselves, and we need to be their voice and stand up for them. Of course, you're and, quite right. And not let places like circuses keep animals in terrible conditions and then make them do tricks, and it's just crazy. Okay, but for my last question, do you have hope that my generation can turn things around and save our planet? Absolutely, I do. I'm, I'm always hopeful. I suppose being, I am an optimist because I, I believe that evil and negative things must never win. I believe goodness must win in the end, kindness. What you do from your heart, it's more about what you do from your heart and your feelings and less about the calculation of your mind, weighing one thing up against another. If it's your heart, you're not weighing anything up. You know what you feel. You know that elephant, that bird, that tiger shouldn't be like that. It's not something you worked out in your brain. You just know it. It's a gut feeling. And I absolutely know that in America, here, there are young people all over the world who feel that. I think a lot of young people are ashamed of how the grown-ups think that they can keep animals in this sort of way. And good for the, all the children and the young people. And you, you see, you've got your own group already, haven't you? So, yeah. you know, how many have you got on your group? Well, I've, so my organization is Kids Can Save Animals. And I have, I sell my book called Let's Go on Safari. And I've raised around $15,000 for my organizations. And I also work a lot with schools and educating kids. I flew Michelle over. She is my co-author. She's a safari guide in Africa. And we okay. to schools in New York and California, here in Austin where I live, and educating them, you know, it's not okay to keep animals as a pet. And, you know, poaching leads to end poaching. And so 
I really do lots of work with kids because I believe if we educate them now to save wildlife and wild spaces, that they'll grow up be, to be an animal advocate. <laughs> Lovely. I watched your your um your chat with Eric, and that, yeah, Eric Dynasty, that yes. made me really looking forward to talking with you today. I'm afraid I rather chatted on and on. I haven't said asked enough about you. Mm. <laughs> it's okay. I mean, you are doing so many amazing things. I mean, thank you. You're helping all these amazing different causes. And now it's up to my generation to take your legacy and keep fighting for what we believe in. So thank you so much for joining Club 15 today. It was great getting uh, to know everything you're doing. You're thank you so me. much for inviting me.